and just act like it's the first time you've ever heard it <laughs> if I just recently preached it here, right? Uh, but I, I searched everywhere and couldn't find where I had, and I'm sure that I was saving it uh, for around this time, but uh, my memory got a little messed up you know, over the last little bit, mainly because I turned it off. This guy. I was out of town, and uh, so, like, literally out of town, mentally. But uh, anyway, John 7, uh, beginning in verse 37, I want to preach to you, Jesus appeals to the world, but I'm not going to show you uh, what I mean by that until the end, all right? So it's one of those cliffhanger things, all right? You've got to stay awake and stay with me till the end, and then I'll show you how Jesus appeals to the world. But let's stand together and we'll read these three verses together. John 7 and beginning in verse 37. These are the words of God. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Lord, as we open the word together tonight, this wonderful passage, the wonderful promise that you've made to us right here, I pray that you'd help us to uh, hunger, to understand, to know uh, what you are saying here and how it affects us. And I pray, Lord, that there would be a great delight and desire on our part for what you say in your word here and for the, uh, the thing that you've assured us of here. I pray that you'd help me as I preach, that I would open the word powerfully to your people, that we would see the point of it, and that we would live by it. Particularly, Lord, that we would thirst for our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> it had been a year and a half since Jesus visited Jerusalem, and John explains why the long delay in verse 1 of John chapter 7. The Jews sought to kill him, and this is a subject that is repeated later on. We looked at it this morning, in fact, verse 19 and 20. Jesus is telling them, by the way, I pointed this out to you this morning, that Jesus uh, says to them, you don't know me, because you don't know God, he says. And he said that because the Jews thought that they knew God, they thought God had especially revealed themselves to them through the law. But earlier in verse 19, Jesus said to them that you, you talk about the law, he said. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law, he said, and he gives evidence of it. Because he says, why go ye about to kill me? Now that very clearly would violate the law of Moses. And someone could say, well, you know, Jesus was just paranoid, right? You know the, the joke, right? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean everyone's not out to get you. Right? And Jesus here, when he says... Why go ye about to kill me? And of course, there's an immediate denial from those from outside the region, Galileans mainly, who haven't heard the rumors 
and who say you have a devil. No one's going about to kill you. And then we come to verse 25, and the residents of Jerusalem, who are in the know and hear all the rumors circulating, say, isn't this the one they're seeking to kill? How can he be preaching boldly here? Right? So, so Jesus is pointing out to them that they think they know God because they have the law, but they don't keep the law. They don't treasure it. They don't value it. They don't obey it or follow it. So, of course, they're not going to know the God of that law then. And because of that, they don't know Jesus. If they knew God, they would recognize Jesus. Because Jesus is God. That's really the only way to recognize him is to see his deity. If you won't do that, you may know the man, Jesus of Nazareth, but you don't know Jesus, the Savior. You don't know him. And so that's what Jesus is getting at here in this passage. So, so this thing of the Jews' attempts, desire to kill him, which is already showing up right here. But this thing is a big part of the theme here in John chapter 7. <clears throat> the reason they want to kill him is because they have not forgotten that in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. The man at the pool of Bethesda, he healed that man, which by the way, you know, I've, it's been a while, but I remind you that in that particular miracle, there's no mention of forgiveness, there's nothing that would indicate that that man who was healed, the lame man healed there, became a believer or a disciple or a follower of Christ. In fact, what we see in the story, when the pressure came on that man, he was happy to sell Jesus. He was happy to throw Jesus under the bus. The reason Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath day was... Well, it was, the reason he healed the man was because it was the Sabbath day, because it would be notable, and because he intended to challenge the Jewish, the religious authorities with that. So a year and a half later, they have not forgotten. They have not forgotten that he came into Jerusalem. It's one thing for him to be a Sabbath breaker off in Galilee, but it's another thing for him to come under their nose to do it there in Jerusalem. And they had not forgotten. They had not let it go. They still have a desire to put Jesus to death. They're going to find a reason. And of course we know that they are going to do that soon. That's coming. So this is all set up for all of that. Now Jesus' brothers strongly urged him to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. They thought that he should show himself publicly um, so that all would believe on him. And of course, they're thinking with uh, unbelieving minds, they're thinking that if Jesus just works his miracles, like if he takes his um, circus uh, on the road, that he will make many, many followers. Of course, um, that shows ignorance also and the um, unbelieving, unregenerate, minds of the brothers of Jesus uh, because they think in these kinds of terms here and Jesus has already I mean remember it's in John that Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000 right with five loaves and two fish and there are 12 baskets of fragments the leftovers the leftovers were more 
than the lunch that he began with. That could be like a sermon right there. The leftovers were more than the lunch. See, I'm telling you, I, I'm reserved on purpose, okay? It's intentional. Because I could do it. I could totally do it, all right? Um, it, it's not hard. That's the thing. It's not hard. It's really easy. It makes up for a lot of lack of study and things like that. But anyway, uh, we'll come back to that some other time. <clears throat> but, but when he's done that kind of miracle already, right? They've seen him do it. And then afterwards, he makes his claim. They, he's not the Messiah they wanted. And when he tells them what kind of Messiah he is, they don't want him. See, that's the thing. And the brothers don't get that. They think that this is just a great show. And people will come and they'll follow you. They'll believe on you. Because this is the way the mind of man works in these things. So whether they meant well or not, Jesus did not go to Jerusalem until God sent him. That is also key to understanding this chapter. Jesus does what he does because it's the Father's will. I already, I'm not going to re-preach what I did this morning. I'll save that for another time. But, but I'm just going to point out to you again that what, what men hated about Jesus was his submission to his father's will. Him doing what God, his obedience to God. Because remember that holiness, obedience, shines the light on disobedience, exposes disobedience. And men don't like to have their evil deeds exposed. I read a book called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Really wonderful book. I think we have it in our bookstore. Great book. I highly recommend it. But he talks about um, one time when uh, they had one of those celebrity golf things and they put Billy Graham with a group of people. Now, this is not a recommendation of Billy Graham and his ministry and things like that. There are objectionable things. But it was just an interesting thing in the story. The guys that were paired up with him, the news media went to them afterwards and wanted to know, what was it like? What did you think about? And, and they were angry, angry. I've never been around such a Pharisee, they said. And the people asked him, what did he do? And they stormed off. And then later they came back and said, you know, really? He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. It just was intimidating to be with him. Now, I know that you can make too much of that, all right? But I'm, I've said it to you before. The reason why people become hostile, antagonistic towards you, when you're saying, I didn't do anything, right? It's because you bear the image of Christ. You are the saver, as Peter said it, of life unto life. But to those that don't believe, you are the saver of death. Right? You need to understand that. Because your commitment to Christ, well, this just happened. We, we visited a friend of ours and um, she just lost her husband not too long ago, and we went to visit her. And uh, 
her brother was there visiting with her. And so we went in and talked and so on. And then um, her son later told me that uh, after we left, about 30 minutes later, he said, um, my, me and my wife pulled into the driveway and my mom's brother said, it's those people again, don't let them in. <laughs> he said, you just can't stand to be around Christians. That's typical in our world. Okay? And it's because men love darkness and their evil deeds are exposed. And, and if you think that any one of us, by our, man, shabby obedience, shines the light on their disobedience, think how much the Lord Jesus Christ in his life would shine the light on their disobedience. His obedience unto death, even the death of the cross, will in fact be the salvation of the world. And that's something that John emphasizes, not just in this chapter, but in this book, in the Gospel of John. It's over and over repeated that Jesus says that I'm doing my Father's work. That's what he came to do by his obedience to save us from our disobedience. Now Jesus, of course, traveled to Jerusalem. That is the whole point of John 7. But he did it according to his father's timeline and not according to his brothers. About the middle of the feast, Jesus began to teach publicly in the temple. And this caused immediate conflict. The world, of course, hates anything that reminds them of their disobedience. And if the life of Jesus did that, surely his teaching, his instruction did that. Jesus would not come to terms with the world. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus calls the world to repentance. His appeal to the world is always, stop being the world and believe on me. And this is the message Jesus taught in the temple as well. Our text takes us to the last day, the great day of the feast. By the time of Christ, the Feast of Tabernacles had expanded. It, it was, when it was established in the Old Testament, it was a seven-day feast. But by this time in the life of Christ, it had become an eight-day feast. So you had the seven days of the feast, and then the eighth day was a kind of celebratory Sabbath. It was a final <clears throat> celebration day at the conclusion. And the Feast of Tabernacles is uh, the, the, the most wonderful feast in the Jewish calendar. It was their Christmas if you will. They, they would go away, and they would set up booths, and they would, um, they would uh, sometimes travel. They would go to Jerusalem. It was one of the feasts that uh, they would go to Jerusalem for, and they would uh, feast, and they would celebrate, and there were many wonderful things attached to this. So <clears throat> the seventh day of the feast would have been the final day of the official ceremonies, the eighth day would have been a special Sabbath festival, and by this time, in the life of Christ, it was considered to be the great day of the feast. So now Jesus could have said these things on the seventh day. I think that some have made the case for that, um, but I think that it's clear that it was on the eighth day, the last day, the great day of the feast is what um, our text says. And Jesus made on that day one of the most beautiful appeals in all of Scripture. And I say this to you again. It's one of 
those passages that has just captivated my heart and mind over the years. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. May God give us a thirst for the Lord Jesus Christ so that we will come to him and drink. I want to keep the outline as simple as I can here so we won't have all these ironies and ironies and more ironies. I'm trying to keep track of which one we're on now. That's happened this morning. <clears throat> anyway, you went to sleep and we were on number three and you woke up and we were on number two. <laughs> Did that happen? And then we jumped to number four. All right, anyway. So we're going to... I'm going to show you first what Jesus is saying, and then I want to show you what that means to us. That's a really simple outline. So let's see what Jesus is saying here. The Feast of Tabernacles included two very important ceremonies, a water-pouring ceremony and a lights ceremony. Now, the light ceremony is the theme of John chapter 8. The water-pouring ceremony is the theme of, John chapter, of this passage right here, this chapter, really. On each of the seven days of the feast proper, the high priest would lead a procession to the pool of Siloam, where he would fill a golden flagon with water and then return with it to the temple. They would march in great procession up to the altar at the temple. They would enter at the water gate, which was named for this ceremony. The priest would blow three blasts on the shofar, which was a trumpet used for reserved for this kind of celebration. Then while the temple choir sang the Hillel, which is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, the priest would march in procession around the altar, holding up this golden flagon. When the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim would shake the lulav, which is like a bouquet of myrtle and willow twigs tied with palm. And he would shout, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. The water would then be poured into a silver bowl. Wine would be poured into another silver bowl. And then the bowls would be poured out before the Lord, before the morning sacrifice. For the Jews, these ceremonies Mark the Lord's provision of water in the desert. Remember, it's the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. So they would set up these booths and stay in them to remember, to memorialize the years that they spent in the wilderness when God provided for their needs. And remember how God had provided water from the rock, right? In the wilderness for the Jews. And so it reminded the people not only of God's past provision, but also of the Old Testament promise that the Lord would pour out his Holy Spirit in the last days. So these are the two things that they're remembering, memorializing, as they celebrate the, the Feast of Tabernacles. They're remembering, they are memorializing what God had done in providing for their ancestors, but also they are memorializing and reminding themselves that God had promised to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. So they're remembering those two things. Now on the eighth day of the feast, 
The water pouring ceremony was but a memory. Think December 26th, right? Is there a gloomier day on the calendar? You are farther from Christmas on that day than any other day of the year, right? That's why people go in deep depression because I just want another Christmas carol. I just want another Hallmark movie. What am I gonna do? I gotta wait now all this time. And then we don't because we listen to more Christmas music. <laughs> anyway, and you can watch Hallmark movies until your brain bleeds. <laughs> that would be like five minutes of one for me. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> so so here they are, you know. They just had this wonderful weekly long celebration, and now they're kind of unwinding from it. It won't happen again for another year. And Jesus makes an offer to the crowd. The text says that Jesus stood and cried. Now, it's helpful to remember that in that day, a teacher sat and spoke in subdued terms. None of this pacing back and forth. None of this raising your voice. So for Jesus to stand and shout, essentially, was for him to call attention to what he's about to say. And Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. It was a solemn announcement he made, a proclamation to the world. It fits both with the time in which Jesus lived and with the larger theme John builds in his gospel. I doubt that we could understand really how important water was to people in that day. Think of the Jews in the wilderness for all that time. And where do we go to get water? When you visit Israel, you see um, enormous, elaborate wells and walkways down into those wells. It's impressive. Um, you know, the, the old joke, um, welcome to Pennsylvania, where the men are men and so are the women. <clears throat> The women in that day, <laughs> clay pots, they carried on their head or on their shoulders, and about, I don't know, 200 steps going down, winding down, no guardrail, going down into this well uh, to get water and carrying it out, and that was just for one container <coughs> of water. How many trips they would make, I don't know, but each one had to do it for their own household. Water meant work. Everywhere, always. You didn't drink half a water bottle like we do and have, you know, a half dozen half drunken water bottles. You didn't leave the water running the whole time that you were um, brushing your teeth or taking a shower. Water was precious. To get it required labor and work. The people 
love to recite Isaiah 12 and verse 3 as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Drawing water was always worked. The Feast of Tabernacles reminded the people to rejoice as they drew that water. To rejoice because they had water. <coughs> Now, John uses water frequently in his gospel. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but in John chapter 2, there was a wedding feast in Cana where, they turned, where Jesus turned water to wine. And in John chapter 3, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus of being born of water and of the Spirit. And in John chapter 4, Jesus met a woman at a well and introduced himself by asking her for water. And telling her that if he, she knew who he was, that she would ask for him of him and he would give her living water. And she would never thirst again. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man by the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 6 is the first chapter uh, that does not mention water. But Jesus speaks of drinking in John chapter 6. And what he said fits with the theme, the message of John chapter 7. Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And clearly, Jesus is building on that, or John, I should say, is building on that in his gospel here. Because what he says in John chapter 7 relates more to what he said in John 6 than it does to any of the other passages on water. <clears throat> because in chapter 6, when Jesus said, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. What he meant was that we are to believe in him and that we are to believe in him to such an extent that it's like we eat, we chew and swallow and drink him. And so in John chapter 7, in our text, verse 37, when Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That's what he means. To believe. Not believe in a way of acknowledging that, yes, there's a lot of truth to Jesus. Remember where we just ended in John 7, a little bit earlier, that the Jews, many began to believe on Jesus and they essentially argued this way. If a second Moses comes, if there's another Messiah, will he do any more miracles than Jesus of Nazareth? And so they decided on a kind of compromise belief. And an acknowledgement that, no, this Jesus of Nazareth does as many miracles as the Messiah would do. So we can at least acknowledge that. But that's not what it means to believe. When Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, 
He meant to swallow. He meant to quench your thirst by drinking me, swallowing it. And we all, we are familiar with this. Like we have a, a, a familiar idiom in our culture that will make total sense to us. It's not, I mean, this is an accident, all right? But still, we can understand it because when we say to somebody, drink the Kool-Aid, we all know what that means, right? Drink the Kool-Aid. It means that you swallow it, that you believe. Of course, it's a reference to um, Jim Jones, I think, that uh, led a group of people over in Africa, and they made you know cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, and they all had a death pact, and they all drank it, and a mass suicide, and that's a famous thing, uh, or was a famous thing when I was a kid, at least. But ever since then, when people have wanted to say, you know, that you just believe it, like you're gullible or something. But of course, Jesus isn't calling us to be gullible. He's just calling us to drink the Kool-Aid, to drink it, to swallow it. And when it comes to Christ, I drink his Kool-Aid. Absolutely. Absolutely. What he gives me, I want to drink. I want that living water. <coughs> now in his appeal, Jesus uses a third class conditional. If any man thirst. The third class conditional is the closest to the way we use an if-then statement. Uh, you know, if, if I punch you in the nose, your nose will bleed. If you have a fever, then you're sick. Um, if you, you know, eat uh, poison food, uh, you'll die. All right, that kind of thing. It's that kind of, when you can fulfill the condition, you can expect the consequence. That kind of thing. So Jesus said, notice how this works. If any man thirst, he said, that's the condition that must be fulfilled. And notice what he points to as the consequence. Let him come unto me and drink. That's an unusual one. Let him come unto me and drink. So the result when a man thirsts is that he must come to Jesus. Jesus uses a third-person imperative here. We don't have those in our language in English, but a third-person imperative in the King James is usually translated as let. So it is a command of consent. It's, it works like this. If you are thirsty, you can come and drink. That's, that's the command. If you're thirsty, you don't need to be told to drink, right? You just need to know where the water is and that you can have some. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm the water, you can have some. If any man thirst, you can have some to drink. <clears throat> He's compelling men. Calling them to come, giving them provision, giving them permission to drink. And then he adds, he that believeth on me. So there he is connecting that drinking with believing. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And on that point, we have two issues that need to be resolved. 
What scripture does Jesus refer to here? And whose belly will be the source of living water? I want to answer that second question first. The source of living water. Now, it doesn't seem to me like this should be a controversy. It probably doesn't seem like that to you either. But for a variety of reasons, the more recent commentaries have argued that it is out of Jesus' belly that the rivers of living water flow. Here's just, I'll give you a brief sketch of the way this is argued. The commentators have a hard time seeing the believer as the source of living water, as the fountain of living water. So they argue that the punctuation is the problem. The period should be after he that believeth on me. Okay, so essentially they're saying that Jesus says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink he that believeth on me. Okay, that Jesus is further identifying the one who should come and drink. And then he says, out of his belly, his being himself, his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That makes room for the verse to be speaking of the belly of Jesus. Now they draw uh, parallels from the Old Testament, from the rock in the wilderness, which Moses struck, and a New Testament parallel from the water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side, um, which is, by the way, recorded only in John's Gospel, so that uh, makes it easier to make that connection there. But let me, let me just remind you, all right? Our job in looking at the Word of God is not to make everything make sense, all right? Our job is to understand what God said. That's our job. It doesn't always make sense. Look, if our job was to make everything make sense to the human mind, how would we explain eternity? Huh? How are we going to do that? Because I can't make sense of eternity. I can't, I can't conceive of it. I can't grasp it. All I can do is peer over the edge of time and look into the vastness of eternity. That's all. If I'm supposed to make sense of everything in the Bible, how am I supposed to handle the fact that God is not a man, but Jesus is God, and Jesus is a man? How am I supposed to deal with that? Huh? I'm telling you this not to cast doubt, not to make you doubtful of the Word of God, but to remind you again that God is speaking to us and telling us what we're to believe and what we're to do. And our job is not to say, oh yeah, that makes sense, now I'll do it. Our job is to say, oh yes, I see it. I see what you say, and I will believe that and live by it. That is our call, that is our job. And so, <clears throat> we must find the true meaning of the passage and then adjust our understanding accordingly. You can move the punctuation however you want, but the verse still makes it clear that it is out of the believer's belly that these rivers of living water will flow. Look again at the verse. Jesus said, he that believeth, notice, notice the, prep, the, the, the pronoun that he uses. Like we, we are in a pronoun era, right? Like pronouns have never been more significant. And there was a day when 
People took pride in ignoring pronouns, right? But now, that, like, that's our identity. What is wrong with us? But anyway, notice the pronoun that Jesus uses. He that believeth, he said, on me, he said, me, you know, for a little English lesson, that would be Jesus referring to himself. And then, in the next phrase, he said, out of his belly, you know, again, pronoun, like, you got to be pronoun aware here. If Jesus just said me, then he could have said out of my belly. That would mean out of Jesus' belly, right? But he said out of his belly shall flow rivers of li living water. The his clearly refers to the one who believes and not to Jesus. That doesn't mean that the believer's belly is the source of living waters. Of course we're not the source of living waters. Jesus didn't say we would be the source of living waters. He said out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. <clears throat> Jesus clearly means to say that he is the living water. That's also what he said a few chapters ago in John chapter 4. John makes it clear that these rivers of living water that flow from the believer's belly come from, as one uh, comment, commentator said it, the rich abundance of the Spirit's life and power in the heart of the believer. That's the source. The rich abundance of the Spirit's life and power in the heart of the believer. That in other words, the God who cannot be contained when he indwells you by means of his Holy Spirit, cannot be contained. Cannot be contained. The Holy Spirit who indwells you cannot be contained. That's what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus is the source of living water, and when the Holy Spirit is given, which notice in the next verse, John points to that as well, as something that, when Jesus said it, was not yet accomplished. But he was speaking of the Spirit, John said, which was not yet given. When the Holy Spirit is given, he will make the heart of the believer a channel of blessing to others. That leaves us then with the second, the first question that I asked. All right, two questions. Do you remember? We'll have a quiz. Uh, the first question was, what scripture is Jesus referencing? Because he said, as the scriptures say it. <clears throat> now this is again uh, an area that we need to have understanding. That quite often in the Gospels, Jesus would reference scripture but there was no clear scripture that he was referencing. Because Jesus counted on the fact that the people he was speaking to knew the Old Testament. Knew it well enough that he didn't have to proof text anything. So in this case right here, I have no doubt that Jesus has a particular passage in mind, but it's impossible to say which passage he has in mind because he's not making a direct quote 
here. So the best we can do is give an educated guess about the possible scriptures Jesus is referring to. But let me quickly add that it's not any, it's not a stretch at all to say that Jesus is referencing Old Testament scripture, or, and it's not a stretch to say that Jesus counted on his audience knowing the Old Testament well enough that they would know what he was talking about as well. His audience doesn't dispute what Jesus is saying here. John adds, verse 39, not for their sake. That was John adding that in verse 39. He didn't add that for their sake because this was already done. He adds it for our sake, those of us who would come to Christ when there were no living witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And John, by the way, wrote this whole gospel for us. So they would have known the audience when Jesus cried that, when he stood up and shouted this, the audience would have known that Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit of God. John tells us so that we'll understand. Now the rabbis regularly connected the water pouring ceremony that they did every day in the Feast of Tabernacles to Old Testament prophecy, which in turn they connected to the water miracle in the wilderness. Ezekiel 47 and verse 1 is one such reference. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward, that is, from the temple. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under, from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. And the passage goes on, it's a long passage, but it goes on to describe this kind of a trickle that comes out from under the temple and flows out the gates and builds a head of steam and collects more water and grows as it advances until it reaches the Dead Sea. And when it flows into the Dead Sea, it heals the Dead Sea, so that the Dead Sea becomes waters for drinking. In Joel 3 and verse 18, we have another such reference. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth to the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Also in Zechariah 14 and verse 8. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go up from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. Again, all of these prophecies, the, the Jews in John's day, in Christ's day, connected them to the promise of the Holy Spirit. This water that is spreading through the land is connected to the Holy Spirit. Probably the most direct reference to it is in Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come 
Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So Jesus wanted his Jewish audience to understand that he was the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. He was the fulfillment, not of a part, not of the water pouring ceremony. He was the fulfillment of the entire thing, the whole thing. All that they remembered, remember what was memorialized there, the provision of water in the wilderness. And the uh, promise of the Spirit in the New Testament when the Messiah came. Jesus is saying that I am the fulfillment of all this. When Jesus stood and shouted for their attention and said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He meant, I am what you're looking for. Now, of course, anytime a man stands up and says, I am what you're looking for, we think to ourselves, you know, big, egotistical, conceited, arrogant. We have all kinds of names for a guy like that, right? There's only one, only one, who can say that with authority. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what he is saying here. Come to me and drink. If Isaiah could invite the thirsty to drink from the waters, Jesus announces that he is the one who can provide the waters. The bottom line, the Old Testament regularly promises that those who believe the Messiah will receive the Holy Spirit and will become a source of refreshment to others as a result. And the most important point is this, that Jesus of Nazareth, this Nazarene they despise, that he will be the one to supply the living water. He would be, in fact, the supply of living water that would flow from the belly of a believer. <clears throat> the Jews gathered around Jesus on that day absolutely understood what he was saying. But for our sake, John tells us that Jesus spoke this of the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. The word given, notice, is italicized in the verse. John literally says, that the Holy Ghost was not yet. And he doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was not yet in existence, because the Holy Spirit is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. In the beginning, we know at the creation of the world, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit worked among men and came upon men for special purposes. He did that. But the Holy Spirit came and went at that time. He did not indwell people. Not until after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ was the Holy Spirit fully come. And from the day of Pentecost onward, the Holy Spirit began to indwell the believer, to take up residence in his innermost self, which Jesus refers to here as the belly. 
John explains that when Jesus said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, he was referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit, which would be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. That's what he's saying. I hope that gives a complete picture of what Jesus is describing here in this passage. Now, I want you to consider what it means for us. What Jesus said here applies to our own hearts. Look, we're, Jesus has been glorified. The Holy Spirit has been given. When you received Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit came and began to indwell you. And remember what I said before. The Holy Spirit cannot be contained. He cannot. So understand that. I hope you've been able to follow along. Um, I want to say now what I think will be a faithful application of it. I hope will be a faithful application of it. Jesus promised that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the abundance of his life and power in our hearts would overflow to the lives of others. That's what Jesus promised. That's what he pledged here. He promised this on one condition. If any man thirst. That's the condition. If any man thirst. The condition that must be met if we would be a blessing to the people around us is that we must thirst. Spurgeon said, what is this thirst? Thirst is nothing actual or substantial. It is a lack, a want, a crying out of its emptiness. It is the absence of a necessary. Thirst, he said, is a painful need. Thirst is an emptiness, a vacuum. It is the midst of that which is essential to life. Thirst is conscious need, conscious to a painful degree. We know this, that thirst is a painful need, a painful experience. It's not intensely painful unless you become intensely thirsty, but it is a painful thing. If I talk about thirst too much, you'll begin to experience the pain of it. The dryness starts to creep in like you're eating a saltine cracker and it's crumbling around inside your mouth, right? And soaking up all the moisture and you're trying to swallow desperately like on one of those heat activities, right? Where they give you all the crackers and see who can whistle the fastest, right? And you can never whistle when you've done that, so dry in there, right? That's thirst. Thirst is emptiness. Thirst is need. Thirst is, in fact, a painful awareness of my need, of my lack, of my wants, of my desire. And that's the one condition. The one condition I want. If we would be a blessing to others, if we would be, in fact, not a river, not a channel, but Jesus said, rivers of living water. If we would be that, we must thirst. You can't overflow until you're filled. 
And you can't be filled unless you thirst. The thirst here is not a thirst for success. It is not a thirst for usefulness. It is not a thirst even to be a blessing. We thirst for Jesus. And Jesus means to teach us to thirst for himself in what he says here. This is his call to us, to thirst for Jesus. Secondly, there's a requirement here. If any man thirst, Jesus said, let him come unto me and drink. That is, believe. If you thirst, you must drink. That's what Jesus says. Let him come unto me and drink. I already pointed out that this is an imperative of consent. The command here is given as more of a, you're thirsty, you need to know where the water is and that you can have it. And so Jesus says you can. I'm the water and you can have it. Drink. Jesus is compelling us, drawing us with cords of love to drink from him, the source of living water. If you truly thirst, you don't need to be told to take a drink. You only need to know that you can. And Jesus gives that permission here. You can come and drink. Of course, drinking is also a requirement. Because, of course, if you don't drink, you know, there are no livers of living water that will flow out of you. Right? You get what I mean? You can say that you're thirsty, but if you never take a drink, you die thirsty, right? But one thing is for sure. If you don't drink the living water yourself, you can't be a source of refreshment to anyone else. Thirdly, then, there's a promise out of his belly. The word belly here is an interesting word. The way the Greeks used the word would be the way we use the word heart as the seed of the will and emotions and affections and so on. That's the belly. Our innermost self, the seat of our innermost desires and feelings. <clears throat> Romans 16.8 uses the same word in reference to physical desires. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, that is their own physical desires, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the soul. So, so get what Jesus is saying. Out of, not just out of yourself, certainly not out of your mouth. He, he doesn't say out of your mouth, right? He says out of your belly, out of, out of your affections, your warm affections, your passionate desires shall flow rivers of living water. That's what he is promising here. Spurgeon reminds us that the rivers of living water don't flow from our mouth. They flow from the belly. The promised power, he said, is not oratory. We've had plenty of words, floods of words, but this is hard work. The source of the rivers is found in the inner life. It is an inward work at its fountainhead. It is not a work of talent and ability and show and glitter and glare. It is altogether an inward work. The life flood is to come out of the man's inmost self, out of the bowels and essential being of the man. 
Now this is a reason why we must keep our heart with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. It's a convicting thought. Because I think in my ministry, if I'm just being candid with you, I've often thought that the rivers of living water flowed out of my brain, out of my mind. But Jesus said, no, the rivers flow out of your essential, out of your inmost desires and passions and will and affections. That is what gives life from you to others. That's the way you are a source of life to others. When I look at my own heart, I find often that there's a poverty of anything that would be a refreshment to anybody. Let us not be trickles drips, a dry creek bed where water only flows in season. Let our heart be a constant fountain where rivers of living water overflow. Secondly, I can't help but notice the connection between my innermost desire and the Lord Jesus' desire to obey his Father's will. We tend to look for the mystical, to want God to work through our feelings. But God works through the belly, the innermost self, living in submission to God. <clears throat> when I will one will with Jesus Christ, then out of my belly flows liver. livers. There it is again. I don't want livers flowing out of my belly. <laughs> I'm not putting livers in my belly that way they won't flow out. <laughs> rivers of living water. It's a tongue for twisters. So this, this is the thing. If, if you're thirsty for Jesus, you come to him and drink. Your will is going to be transformed to resemble his. That's what will happen. And that is the way you become a source of of refreshment to other people. Fourthly, then, I see here a possibility, and that is in the promise of the Holy Spirit. John tells us Jesus is speaking of the Spirit so we can be a channel of blessing, not because we have a special connection that's not available to the average Christian, because we are on a higher plane, dwelling there in the clouds. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's actually very <clears throat> common to the Christian experience. Because, you know, some of you might maybe walk on a higher plane. I don't know. Um, some of you might be really spiritual, all right, and really like wring out your soul every day, every drop before the Lord, and just empty your soul and live in that condition of brokenness that we're told makes us a super Christian. But there's the thing about that is that then you get into the haves and the have-nots. And Jesus doesn't speak of it that way. He doesn't speak of this as the special sauce of sanctification. 
you like that string of 